man, I'm going to need you guys to do something for me today. I'm going to need you guys to pray for me. Because what we're going to talk about today is something, is really the culmination of a five-year study. And, I mean, that's five years of reading book after book after book. And so to take that content and, and give it to the Lord and ask the Lord to kind of, you know, nix this and, and cut this. And it, it's been trying because there's just so much and it's all good news. Praise the Lord. It's just all fantastic news. So pray for me today. In fact, we're going to pause. We're just going to say a word of prayer to let God, we've already, we've already prayed, but we're going we're gonna to pray again and we're going to let God kind of just take it from here. Uh, so bow your heads with me. Father, Lord, we are excited because we're in your house of worship. Lord, we've showed up to this, this building called a church, but we really know that, that it is the people that make your church. And so, Lord, we're, we're not professionals. We don't proclaim to be professionals. We're, we're, we're people. And you allow us to be human beings in process, and so we've gathered here at this place to worship you. Lord, we are asking that you would speak clearly that it would be so precise as a surgeon with the scalpel just knows exactly how to, to operate. We ask that you would operate on our hearts this morning in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. We're in a sermon series. So if this is your first time here, we're in the second part. We're just in the second sermon, and it's six weeks. And we're looking through this theme in alternative how God calls us to, to not compete with these other kind of tribes, if you will, right? These political tribes or these sports tribes or these racial tribes. No, we're called to be an alternative community. And so last Sabbath, we looked at the foundation, how we have an alternative foundation. It is built on this beautiful promise that Jesus is the Messiah, meaning we are knit together because we have need of a Savior. We're not the most athletic. We're not the most beautiful. We're not the strongest. We're not the wealthiest. We're, we're, we are not good enough to save ourselves, and so we have need of a Messiah. And by showing up today, we have proclaimed to those we're sitting in a pew with that we have need of a Messiah, and that is our foundation. It's the very foundation that we will continue to build everything on. And so today, we're going to look at this theme, an alternative kingdom. But in order for us to understand a kingdom, we, we kind of have to pause and think a little bit more than just, uh, just rulers or this reign. See, kingdoms have this, this thing that often goes unaddressed, and it is culture. Now, culture really is customs, right? It's, it's how one lives, and so in the, in the, um, in the sports world, you, you have a certain culture. Um, as much as I absolutely despise them, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Bill Belichick and the Patriots organization because of the culture that they have. I, I strongly dislike the team. I, I do not like to see them win. But I have tremendous amount of respect for the culture that they have instilled within the locker room because it is this culture of next man up. It's just a part of the very fabric of the team. It's part of the very identity of the team. And we are uh, formed by culture all the time. There's no escaping it. We are discipled by culture. 
There was this new documentary called The Social Dilemma. So if you, if you have yet to cancel your Netflix account, which, there, I mean, we, we, there's, there's very good reason to cancel your Netflix account, but before you cancel it, if you haven't, watch The Social Dilemma. Just, just do that. Before you, before you cancel it, watch The Social Dilemma because it's a documentary from these, uh, you know, founders of, you know, or design uh, entrepreneurs that designed the, the like button on Facebook. I mean, these, these brilliant design strategists, and what they're doing is they're teaching us in the ways that media has actually started to shape us. Because if you think about it, Google is free. You can, just, you can pull up your browser, you go to Google, you can type in anything that you want to search, right? In fact, if you start to search, it brings a tab, you know, some tabs below, trying to think what you're actually searching, right? How to make a, and then some might be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich how to make a fort out of Legos. Depending on what you're searching, right, it's going to try and think what you might be searching so you don't have to continue typing. Well, Google's free. Facebook is free. Twitter is free. Instagram is free. TikTok is free. Pinterest is free. So if they're the product, but they're free, how have they become so wealthy? The CEOs and these tech entrepreneurs. And so what these individuals in this documentary have said is that Facebook is not the product. Twitter is not the product, Gmail is not the product, Google is not the product, we are the product. And so our data is collected and shared, and so that's why we get certain ads. That's why when you start to randomly talk about cat food, all of a sudden you're scrolling through social media and there's an ad for cat food. You might not even have a cat. You could have just been in a conversation with somebody about a cat food and all of a sudden there's the ad. Right, we just recently purchased a cycle bike. And because, I mean, I definitely, definitively need some help in my cycling. I did terrible in my triathlon last Sunday, so I need, to, I need, some, I need some help. So we got a cycle bike. And, and as we were getting the cycle bike, all of a sudden on our social media platforms, ads for cycle shoes started to pop up. Well, how, how would it know that? Well, my data is being sold to others, and they're trying to persuade me, or they're using it. I'm the product. That is our cultural norm. This happens all the time through media. That's why you can have individuals who believe so strongly that they are right because they saw something online and here are the facts and we could very quickly pull up an article that refutes those from an alternative source. That's the culture that we're living in. That's why we're so fractured is because we're so engaged, we're so connected and yet somehow so disconnected, right? So over the past five years, I've sought to understand culture, in particular, American culture. And over that time, I've read over 120 books on culture. And if there was one book that I would highly recommend, the, the very first book, it is this book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God by Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas. And the reason for this is because Reverend Douglas is, is she is revered, she is highly regarded. She is so respected. And in this book, this is not a long book, and by long, I mean I, my average reads are about 400 pages. This is, this is not nearly that much. It's like 200. So if you're not into reading past 200 pages, it's, it's in, your, in your page length parameters. But what she does is she highlights really what is the, the, the foundational layer of why we have racial tension in America. And it's a cultural reason. And it has to do with colonization. 
It has to do with this, this concept of when, when, when a country or a ruling body seeks to colonize, really what they're doing is they're saying our culture is better. Our culture can help you achieve human flourishing. If you adopt our cultural practices, you will have that peace that you want. You will have that joy that you want. You will have that pleasure that you want. That's what colonization really is. It's bringing in culture. And so when we think today of an alternative kingdom, think an alternative culture. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God has just created Adam and Eve, right? He's, he's fresh off of pulling Adam up out of the dust and taking his rib and creating Eve, and he, and he sets them as the rulers of the world. So he gives them dominion. He gives them rulership. He gives them reign, and he says this. They have a two-fold responsibility. Uh, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. Well, tend means to kind of cultivate. In fact, in some translations it says to cultivate it. Cultivate culture. It's the same root word. So Adam and Eve were given this command to bring about the culture of God's kingdom. And so we're going to be unpacking today the kingdom of God. Now, it's very, it's very fascinating because if, I, if we were to ask uh, what was the number one thing Jesus spoke on the most... We might tend to think, oh, salvation, right? How to be saved. And, I mean, that's, he definitely spoke about that a lot. We might talk about how to live a good life, right? Depending on our view of Jesus. We might, we might think, we might answer that question. Oh, he said, yeah, we must love each other, right? He spoke on love more than anything else. But over a hundred times in the New Testament, he references the kingdom of God. In fact, as we saw in the scripture that, that was read by, by uh, Ethan, it, this is Acts 1. 1 through 2, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. This is, this is Luke writing. He's a doctor, he's a historian, he says, look, Theophilus, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I mean, this is Jesus. He's resurrected, right? He spent three years with the disciples proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, he, he gets baptized and he comes up out of the water and he enters his ministry and he starts going through the streets saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's going over here and he's, he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's raising up the dead. And it's all within the context of the kingdom of God is at hand. And here he's resurrected and he takes 40 days to continue to teach them about the kingdom of God before going up to heaven. Why would Jesus have to take 40 days? He spent three years because we tend to not grasp cultural change very quickly. It, it, it causes us to feel uncomfortable when somebody, when somebody walks in, this is why when somebody walks in and you can tell that their culture is slightly different, and that's not ethnic culture, that might be political culture, that might be sports culture. You just pick up on your, I mean, you're, we're in the South here, right? So, you know, it's safe to assume that you're an Atlanta Falcons fan. Not everyone is, right? But you walk in and, or you're, you're in, a, in a place and somebody walks in with a Patriots shirt on, you're immediately going to say, okay, their culture is a little bit different than mine. And it causes you to have some type of reaction, 
It's just natural. We tend, we tend to be slow picking up culture. So, where could we go in the book of the Bible? We're going to be going to Leviticus. And I have the impossible task. Well, I don't think I do. I think, uh, I believe strongly God's going to do it. But we're going to be spending a lot of time in the book of Leviticus. Now, you might be wondering, oh, goodness, not this book, the book that talks about this sacrifice and this sacrifice and this weird thing about how you can't wear, you know, clothes that are knit together with wool and, and linen and, you know, all, just this, this, this book is archaic. Why would we go to Leviticus? Because Leviticus is God showing Israel, God teaching Israel what their culture is to be like. In fact, if, if you were a parent, if you are a parent, and your kid comes to church, comes to Sabbath school, and starts out as it may be a, a primary Sabbath school, right? What would be the first content you would think they should learn about? Well, it'd be Jesus, right? You'd want them to learn about Jesus. Jesus is your greatest friend, how he's your savior, how he's the Lord over all creation. In Jesus' day, a young Jewish boy walks into the synagogue, his very first Sabbath school lesson, he begins going through the book of Leviticus. Not the prophet Isaiah, not the Psalms, it's through Leviticus. Because Leviticus is all about Jesus, praise the Lord. Leviticus is 100% about Jesus. So, let's go to, um, we're going to skip that, we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to pick up in Leviticus chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 3 through uh, 17. Now, say amen when you get there, or just put your hand up, because we don't want you yelling, you know, real loud. But just put your hand up, because I want to make sure that, that we're all here together, so we can see what it is that this culture truly is, that God wants his church to have, this alternative kingdom. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting." He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron on the priest, uh, the sons of Aaron and the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering and an offering by fire. Of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now we have to pause here because that's a lot. I mean, that's just kind of like, whoa, right? This is, I mean, that's a stipulation, right? This is, this is like a, it almost seems like it's a law. But in reality, God has not commanded this. In fact, we started at verse 3 with supreme intentionality because in verse 2, it says, speak this to all the congregation of Israel when somebody comes to present an offering. So it's not obligated. There's no sense of obligation in bringing this burnt offering. It's strictly out of what God has done for you. Now, this offering, the first burnt offering, and we're looking at three, the first is from a herd. 
The second one, picking up in verse 10, but if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the leg he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar, it is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. We have a second burnt offering, right? The first one comes from the herd, the second one from the flock. Both are types of burnt offering. Now we have a third burnt offering. Verse 14, but if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. Now, this is fascinating because this is, the, this is the very beginning of God communicating his culture, the culture of the kingdom of God to the Israelites. They're still in the wilderness, and he wants them, he, 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 he needs them to become this kingdom because he's got this plan where the Messiah is going to come and, and bring salvation to the whole world, and so he's going to set them up as a different people, a different type of kingdom. In fact, the theme of the whole book of Leviticus really is this concept of holiness. Now, holiness, we tend to think of as it means perfection, right? Like, like it's, it's almost like it's just perfect. Like, it's pristine. It's got no blemish. But really, holiness just means being set apart. So if you set apart, like if, if you're one of those people that when you're eating your food uh, and you want to save the best bite for last... Right? And so, say for instance, you're, you're eating at your grandmother's house or your grandfather's house, whoever is the best cook in the family. And so you're eating and you have that one bite, right? Like my grandmother, she makes this amazing vegetarian burger loaf. It's called Joni's Burger Loaf. Shout out, Joni. I know you're watching online. So, this Joni's Burger Loaf is it's so good. And so, I, my, when she makes it, she has to make two because I will eat basically an entire one. It's all I, that's all I really want. And so as I'm going through my food, I will always save that last bite to be Joni's Burger Loaf. I have set it apart for a specific reason. That is really what holiness is. That is the concept of holiness. Set apart for a specific reason. And so when we're reading Leviticus, the theme is holiness, but not perfection. It's being set apart with supreme intentionality. So... Why would God set apart three different burnt offerings? I mean, come on. They're the nation of Israel. Why would they need three different types of burnt offerings? Well, the first comes from the herd, the second from the flock, and the third is a pair of birds. What this is doing is this is laying the groundwork for everyone has access to God. This is how. If you're offering an animal from the herd, you're of the upper class. You're, you're the 1% because you have a herd, you have a bull, which means that that's a lot of meat, and so you're well off. You're, your pockets are pretty deep. You can withstand, you know, a couple uh, travesties, catastrophes, and you're going to be okay, right? So if you offer from, from your herd, you're the top 1%. If you offer from the flock, you're about middle class, right? You've got some sheep, maybe a couple goats right? And if you're super poor, if you're below the poverty line, you can catch some of the birds that are in the area that are, happen to be pigeons or turtle doves and bring them as an offering. So everyone has access to God in the culture of the kingdom of heaven. 
he goes through great lengths to meet you where you are. That's Leviticus chapter 1. God going through great lengths to meet you where you are. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 17, because if it was up to me, we'd be going through line by line, because this book is, I've been annoying people all week. I mean, I've been talking to him on the phone. I was talking to Stacy Bunch yesterday, and, and we finished our conversation. I said, hey, you got 10 minutes so I can nerd out with you about the book of Leviticus, because I've just been annoying people. I've just been like, you want to hear this really cool thought? Leviticus, it's just all about Jesus. It's fantastic. And people have just been like, okay, okay. You know, the guy that I'm, yeah, it's just, it's just wild. So let's, we, if it was up to me, we'd be going line by line, but we can't because for, for sake of time. So Leviticus 17, verse 11. Now, Leviticus 17 is all about blood. It's 100% about blood. And the reason for it is because there's a very specific reason that God is, is intentionally speaking on what happens or where, why, why blood in the first place. And it has to do with Jesus. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now we know that. We, I mean, okay, right? Blood carries oxygen throughout your body. And so if you're losing blood, once you lose a certain amount of blood, you will die. So if you don't have blood, you, you're not living. So the life is in the blood. The blood has a very specific purpose. And so God is just telling Israel, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Our life is in our blood. And we happen to, we might have different types of blood, right? But we all have that in common. We all have blood coursing through our veins at the very same moment. And then he says this, And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. I have given it to you. He's talking about an animal. He's talking about a sacrifice. And he says, look, I have gifted this to you. There's grace. I have provided. You don't have to. I'm the one who's providing. I'm the one who's giving this to you to make atonement, which is this word of, of reconciliation. It's repairing the breach of a broken relationship is what atonement really is. And so because of what I have given you in the place of animals that function as a sacrifice, there is a way to have our breach repaired because of your sin. Because you chose to go off and, and pursue these other things, I have given you this gift. It's grace. Leviticus chapter 17 is all about the grace of God. How he provides a gift for us. When we have need, he provides a community to help us out. I mean, just this, uh, this past week on Wednesday, if you read the newsletter, Carissa got rear-ended. We have this terrible corner coming around into our neighborhood. And the sign, there's a speed limit sign. It says 35 miles per hour. It should say 15 because there's a, our subdivision is like basically right at the edge of when you're making the turn. And so you can come around the corner super fast and not know that there's a car there stopped to turn in. And it's pouring down rain. And so obviously, when you get the phone call from your, from your spouse saying, I've been, in, I've been into a car accident, your first thought is, oh my goodness, are you okay? Right? Are you hurt? What happened? You know, you're trying, your emotions start to well up within you. And I praise the Lord that I had a friend with me at that time to kind of help me regain my composure by telling me it's going to be okay. She called you. Because my brain would have immediately been like, oh my goodness, she's, she's lost a leg or we're having to go to the hospital or, you know, whatever it is, Right? But a friend of mine could see that I was visibly shaken and said, it's okay, she called you. She's, she's okay. We're going to get there. We hopped in his car. 
God gave me that friend in that moment, right? God provides for us through His grace. He gifts us what we truly need. And so Leviticus chapter 19, and this is where we're going to be spending most of our time. Leviticus 19 is really God showing, I mean, he's laid the foundation from Leviticus 1 up to Leviticus 17. He's laid the foundation for a different type of culture, a holy culture, a culture where everyone is equal, everyone has access to God, regardless of your socioeconomic status. Um, he, he goes in and, and talks about, it's all about the worship service. So you'd bring your your sacrifice, and this is the process that the priest would go through, and it, it's very intentional. It's very detailed. And then you get to Leviticus kind of 18 and 19, and God kind of uh, flips the script, and he starts to talk about how the kingdom of God interacts with others, how this culture, this alternative kingdom, allows us to, to be different when encountering others. And so Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1 then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now notice, that doesn't say, Speak to all the Levitical priests. Speak to the modern-day pastors. Speak to the modern-day elders, to the deacons, to the greeters, to the pathfinder leaders. Right? No, no, it says to all the congregation. To all of the congregation. You are to be holy, why? For I, the Lord, am holy. So you shall be different. You shall be set apart for a specific reason because I am different than all the other gods. I'm the only true God. That's what, that's what God is saying. So verse 3, Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Now when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day. But what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. And the reason why that is, I mean, this is kind of weird, so I have to make a note about this, is because Jesus rose on the third day. And so if you were eating a part of this sacrifice, right, because you wouldn't just, you wouldn't just burn the whole animal, there was a portion that, that you would eat, right? It, it's to point to Jesus who rose on the third day. And so you're not to have anything left over on the third day because Jesus is not in the grave on the third day. But verse 9, now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. 
You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love the Lord, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am your Lord. I mean, this, this right here, I mean, it's, it's profound. God has just set in place a welfare system for those who fall on hard times. You're not to glean your entire harvest. You're to leave some of the outer gleanings alone so that those who, who have need can come and pick them up. Because of that, because of this stipulation, we have the book of Ruth in our Bibles. Because Ruth and Naomi were able to go back and experience redemption because of the culture of the kingdom of God. Right? We have this don't oppress your neighbor, meaning that if you see oppression, God is so anti-oppression. So if you see oppression as a Christian, as a wholly different Christian, somebody who follows a different God, the only true God, who has a different culture, you can't sit still. You have to speak up. Because that's not right according to the culture of the kingdom of God. You can't hate your countrymen in your heart because he has or he or she has different political ideologies or because they tend to watch different TV shows or, or have maybe some, some slight different practices. You're not to have hate in your heart at all. Jesus actually takes this point and goes a little step further and says, hate in your heart is the beginning of murder. The culture is to be different with my people is what God is saying. And so you might be wondering, well, okay, okay, I'm tracking with you, Luke. I mean, Leviticus, yes, it's, it's all about the laws, and, and we tend to not sit down and read the Constitution all the time to study it. And um, I mean, some of us might. And it's a good thing to know what laws there are in our country. But we tend to breeze past Leviticus because that's really what it is, is it's the cultural making, it's the cultural foundation for God's kingdom. So when Jesus gets asked... How do you interpret the law? And he says, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He's referring to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So he's going back to what he would have been introduced to as a child. A child. A child can grasp these things. Jesus says you have to become like a child to understand the kingdom of heaven. So you might be wondering, well, how do you get there, right? How do you, how do you see this culture play out through your heart. Well, Derek Tidball, he says this in the Bible Speaks Today commentary. He says, Leviticus is good news. It is good news for sinners who seek pardon, for priests who need empowering, for women who are vulnerable, for the unclean who covet cleansing, for the poor who yearn for freedom, for the marginalized who seek dignity, for animals that demand protection, for families that require strengthening, for communities that want fortifying, and for creation that stands in need of care. He says, this is the message of the book of Leviticus. And it boils down to God does it for you. I mean, you just go one chapter over, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 8. And it, it says that, uh, you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. It's him. It's not by us white-knuckling our Christian experience more and more and more, saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend more time in prayer because that will make me holier. I'm going to spend more time Bible reading. That will make me holier. That I'm gonna... No, 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 no. It's not, it's not by us saying, okay, God, I'm going to go do this. It's us saying, okay, God, because of what you've done, I can now do this. It's him that does it entirely. So when you see someone within our church that, that is struggling, the, the prescription cannot be oh, you need to go do this more. That's, that's, that's not God's way. It's 100%, hey, come, let's, let's worship. 
Let's worship. James K.A. Smith, he says this, because worship really is what God is, is at. He says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our love. Worship isn't just something we do, it is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. There's a song that I, I, I absolutely love this song, and it's from this group called Upper Room, and it's really the, the title should be, the title's surrounded, but the title should be, This is How I Fight My Battles, because that's the chorus. And it's interesting because as they're singing, This is How I Fight My Battles, they're showing us how they fight their battles. It's through worship. The book of Leviticus is, I mean, it's, it's like 26 chapters of, of religious rite, of worship ordinances. And so what God has done in this, in this beautiful way is he's shown that by worshiping him, we establish an alternative kingdom. The way that we worship God establishes us as an alternative people, with an alternative culture, within an alternative kingdom. It's amazing. But Leviticus 20 verse 8 reminds us that it is he who does it. It's not us through you know, gritting our teeth and white knuckling. It's him through and through. Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. All throughout the book of Leviticus, you have this, this, the, these rules, these laws, these ordinances, and it's all about worship. It's all about sacrifice, which was worship, and it's establishing this culture. But then God pops in almost as if you're like exhausted of this, this weird language that we're not really used to in 21st century America. And he pauses and he says, remember, I'm the God who brought you up out of the house of slavery, out of bondage. I am the Lord your God. It's almost like right at the perfect moment when you're exhausted because you're just like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm breezing through. Line after line after line after line after line. And then he pauses and he says, remember, because of everything that we've just talked about, remember, we do this not because this is how you earn your way to me. No, this is what I've done because I just simply love you. I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the house of bondage. And so when Jesus is on the scene and he's, he's proclaiming this radically different kingdom, in fact, because he preached the kingdom, he was crucified. Because Martin Luther King started to preach a different type of culture, he was killed. Because Dietrich Bonhoeffer went against the Nazi culture and preached a different culture, he was killed. When you talk about a different culture, it is subversive, and people get offended, and it hurts, because culture is so deeply embedded within us that the minute you start to interrupt what we do, our customs for human flourishing, no, 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 we don't like that, we will hurt you. But Jesus offers a radically different kingdom and a radically different culture. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at this in a practical way. Oh, Mark chapter 5, I think I said Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 5. You have Jesus embodying what this culture really is, what this kingdom really means, and how you advance it. So Mark chapter 5, you have Jesus, he, he's just stilled the sea. He's just calmed the sea. 
And he comes to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And the Gerasenes is this region around the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets out of the boat, immediately, it says, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him even more, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. I mean, this is a man who his culture has failed him. His cultural practices, his cultural leaders, his culture has failed him. He's, he's sought after human flourishing, and as he's pursued human flourishing, pursued the promises of these false gods, it's just bound him tighter and tighter and tighter. Man, don't we feel that today? We're living in a day and age where we're living in this post-modernity, which really isn't really the, a thing. It's really the end of this philosophical term, modernity. And the culture of today is that we can have full autonomy. We can have full freedom. We can do whatever we want. And yet we are more anxious, we are more prone to depression, we are more enslaved to various vices, we can't put down our phones, we can't, uh, we can't retreat from social media, and so our relationships have broken down. We're, we're, we're not free. Our culture says, yeah, you can have full freedom, and yet our culture's promise is false. And this is a man, he's in the, he's in the garrisons, he's pursued every avenue, he's been chained. No man is strong enough to subdue him, but here comes Jesus. And Jesus is on the scene. Verse 5, it says, Constantly, night and day, he's screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. He's doing self-harm because he can't stand the day that he's in. He, in fact, for him, probably death seems like a better outcome. And so he's screaming in the tombs. He's gashing himself. But seeing Jesus, verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man. And then Jesus does this amazing thing where he casts out this legion of demons into this, this group of pigs. And all of these other people of the city come and they see it, and they're just like, Whoa, 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 Jesus, what did you just do? Why would you do that? Yeah, yeah, okay, you know, this person, this, this demoniac has been healed, but why would you cast the demons into the pigs and the pigs run off the cliff? That was, that was our bank account. That was our savings account. See, their culture says, for the economy, we'll let people suffer. God's kingdom says, we will do whatever it takes to help people experience freedom. And so, Jesus is implored to leave. Can you imagine? Jesus has just done a miracle. He's just healed a demoniac, and he's asked by villagers to leave. They say, go, Jesus, we don't want you. You're interrupting our way of life. You're causing too much of a ruckus. We don't like this culture. We don't like this kingdom. Please leave. And so Jesus, he's not going to overstep. He doesn't force himself on us. He does not work out of obligation, right? He's not going to twist our arm. He wants us to freely come. And so he gets in the boat, and he leaves. And the man comes up to him and he's like, let me come with you, right? Obviously, when, you, when you've been transformed, when you've been set free, the first thing that you want to do is you want to be with Jesus where he is. And Jesus stops him and says, no, 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 I need you to stay here. I need you, in fact, he says in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 20, or verse 19, he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people 
and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus has done for him, and everyone was amazed. Jesus is going around and he's establishing his kingdom. He's changing lives. He's full, fully disregarding economic resources. He, does, he doesn't get caught up over these things because he's all about people. And what I love about God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus preached, is that everyone has access to it if they just want to, if they just respond to it. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how sinful you are. It doesn't matter if you sinned yesterday or if you sinned this morning or if you've relapsed or if you've, you've given in to a new addiction. It, do, it doesn't matter because Jesus will accept you right where you are. And then as he works with you to set you free, you will learn how to truly live freely. That's the kingdom of God. It's an alternative kingdom of true radical freedom. It's amazing, and it's full of grace. But you fast forward, and Jesus returns to that same place. It's actually in, in Mark chapter 6. He returns to the same place where he was told to leave. But the man was doing a work. See, he was advancing the kingdom of God in that community. And so when Jesus shows up, actually the people recognize him. It says the, the people recognize Jesus and they run up to him and they start bringing their sick and their poor to him. The same people that asked him to leave because that man was advancing the kingdom in his community. Church, what I love about the way that God has set up the local church is that this is a place of everyone having supreme value because we have a Messiah, because Jesus died for us. This is a place where we don't have to be professionals we can be human beings in process, and so we can stumble up on the stage, and, and we can make mistakes, and that's okay because God is with us. But the culture here is one that is radically different than outside. In here, we don't slander one another. In here, we don't, we don't oppress one another. In here, we listen. In here, we care. In here, you can call us up, and we'll move whatever mountain is in the way to come and help you with every resource that we have because we are all united, not by our blood, but by his blood. That's the church, and it's an alternative kingdom with an alternative culture. In fact, Luke says it best. He says, the kingdom of God is within you. Where we are, what make up the kingdom of heaven. And it's an alternative kingdom. And so how are we letting God, through worship, advance the kingdom in our lives? That's a question to ponder as we get, get focused for next Sabbath sermon, which is all about what that ethic looks like. So let us pray. Father, Lord, we just give you thanks because you are a God that, that just is amazing, Lord. You're full of grace. You're full of mercy. And Lord, even though we spent some time in the book of Leviticus, we, we know that it is truly good news. It might not be the same literary style that we're used to reading from, but, but Lord, it's, it's saturated in grace, in mercy, in love, in just who you are. And so it is a book of culture, this culture of a kingdom that we cannot wait to have permanently established on this earth. But Lord, we know that you, you're, you're calling us to advance that. And so we ask that not through our gritted teeth efforts or our white knuckling experiences, but through our worship, you would show us how we can advance your kingdom. 
Lord, we love you and we give you thanks in all things. In Jesus' name we're praying. Amen.